So we're in Mark chapter 9. Here we go. Go ahead and turn there and follow along with me. I'm going to read from verse 14 down to verse 29. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed. And as they ran up, they were greeting him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And one from the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And Jesus answered and said to them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, the boy immediately, or the, immediately the, the boy was thrown down to the ground and started to convulse, and falling down, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father replied, from childhood. And it has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out, saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And now when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of the people said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and when he had gone into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, saying, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Would you bow your head with me one last time before we, before we get into this text? Jesus, thank you, for, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift and the grace of the Bible. Thank you that we have it accessible, readily accessible in our language. We can find it in bookstores. We can find it online. There's often ones laying around in free piles because this city doesn't like them very much, and we can get our hands on them. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray tonight that I would shut up, that I would not give any of my opinions, any of my preferences, any of my ideas, but that I would only speak what it is in your word, or I should not be here. So help me to be true, help me to be honest with the text, and I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that the sovereign work of conviction and of comfort, of affirmation and care uh, would be done to the individuals who are here tonight in this room listening to your word preached. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us in so many ways. Help us to understand a little bit more just how great your love for us is and that we submit to you and trust you with our entire lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I don't know. You know, I was going to I just can't. I was going to try. I was going to try to sit and do the Britney Spears mic, and I just don't. I might. I don't know. I'm having a relational issue right now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to my old ways. So this text here tonight, um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote in one of his many books something along the lines of finding out what it is inside of you based on an unprovoked interaction or something that is chaos coming into contact with some sort of 
some sort of dilemma, something that is chaotic, something that is unpleasant, something that hurts you, that scares you, that makes you mad, and seeing what it is that immediately wells up inside of you there on the spot. And the, the imagery that he, that, he, that he brought up in his writing is essentially this. If you go into a dark basement room and you're stomping your feet and you're clapping your hands, then when you turn on the light, you're most likely not gonna see anything in there that's living, just whatever inanimate objects are around, but if you go into the dark basement of, of, a, of a house or maybe a church and you're, and you're quiet and you're not stomping your feet and you flick the light on real quick unexpectedly that you'll see scurrying around cockroaches or rats. And his point in saying that is that if you come into some sort of dilemma, if you get caught off guard, if something unexpected happens, it might make something well up inside of you that you're not very pleased with. But if you know ahead of time that it's going to happen, then you can fake it until you make it. And we may not be able to get a good read on you if we know what you're going, that you, if you know what's going to happen before it occurs. And there's a lot in this text tonight. There's a lot of things that this text is actually famous for. This is one of the more, more famous, uh, one of the more famous stories in scripture. But one of the things that I think, I think that one of the main things, I think there's a few main takeaways from this. And one of them is what, what is inside of you? How do, you, how do you compare yourself to Jesus? Which is a really hard thing to say and a really hard concept to, to wrap your head around. But we are called as Christians not to sit back idly and just live in some sort of disgusting, autonomous way and then expect that our ticket to heaven has been punched and we're going to be okay. We're called to actively engage in the process of our own sanctification with Jesus and become like him. The word says that we are being conformed into the image of his son and this story shows us how Jesus responds. Hey guys. This story shows us how Jesus responds to something that he did not expect. You hear pastors say Watch Jesus, read the scriptures, read the gospels, find out how he responds, what he says, what he does, how he reacts to people, learn from him. How does he live? How does he speak? How does he treat people? And how is it that he is able to do so over and over and over again? And this is one of those stories. And as always, whenever we just take a, a quick dive into some random place in the scriptures, especially in the life of Jesus, we have to stop and look around the greater context of what's going on. Who's Jesus talking to? Where is he? Is he in the north of Galilee? Is he with Samaritans? Is he with Jewish leadership? Is he with the Sadducees or the Pharisees? Is he with common folk? Is he with the poor? Is he with the rich? What happened before this incident? What happened after this incident? All of this comes into play whenever you're dealing with any given text. And to understand the, the depth of what's going on here, to understand the reaction of Jesus, to understand what he says and what, how he responds to the situation of this young boy who is demon-possessed, and also the fact that his disciples are in the midst of a, of a failure, that he's surprised they're failing at. Oh, unbelieving generation. It, he's a little bit bummed out that his disciples didn't get this straight. We have to consider the text right before this story, and it's the story of Jesus in the, in the, the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's called. In the Mount of Transfiguration, and the story of the young boy who's possessed by the Spirit are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're always back to back. This, this is the same story in all three of the synoptic gospels, and they're always in this order. This is how it happened. This is how it went down. The, the authors, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are trying to convey something to us 
explicitly. It's repeated in the scriptures. There's something here that we're really supposed to understand. It's the same in all three. In the Mount of Transfiguration, and if, if anybody doesn't know, Jesus goes up into a mountain, most likely Mount Hermon in the far north above the Sea of Galilee, goes to Mount Hermon with James and John and Peter. And you don't have to turn there. This is in the same chapter. This is in Mark 9. If you just cast your eyeball up, you'll probably see it. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments were shining whitely, or intensely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I relate so much to Peter. <laughs> he had no idea what he was talking about. He was afraid. He didn't know what to say. Verse 7, and then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. So the reason why I bring this up is because Jesus has just been in the presence of the Father. He's been in the presence of these two saints who have died, Moses and Elijah. They're conversing with him. The Father is affirming him. He's telling Jesus at the very least that, hey, what you're doing is great. Keep doing it. You are my son. Peter, shut up. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Every idea that you have, set it off to the side and listen to Jesus Christ. Listen to what your Lord has to say. Listen to what your Lord thinks would actually be a good idea. Peter, shush. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. Ian, shut up and listen to what God actually is telling you. And so there's this, this big, literal mountaintop moment where Jesus goes up, elevates, is with the Father, is with these two saints, and then comes back down and immediately is confronted with this chaos. And so we see how he responds. We see what comes out of him. We see that he is willing and able at the drop of a hat not to get irritated, not to get flustered, not to get upset or bewildered, but to, in a controlled, calm way, deal with the situation. And actually, as we've seen with Jesus again and again and again, he makes things better. He's confronted with a chaos that he didn't see coming, and he is able in a moment to wash feet, to heal, to teach, to help, and we, when we come up against unforeseen agitation, we just get, typically, we, get, we just get mad. We grumble. I do this in traffic every day. I repent more in the car than I think I do anywhere else because it's immediate. Pedestrians or otherwise, there's always something that's popping out of nowhere, freaking me out, and then I have to repent of the things that I say, but Jesus is calm, he is collected, and on top of that, he has the weight of the cross hanging over his head. He knows that the cross is coming. At this point in Mark's gospel, we're at the tail end of Jesus's ministry on earth. We know that, the, he, we know that he knows the cross is coming very soon, and he still, with all of the weight, with all of the pressure, knowing that he's gonna be beaten, knowing that he's gonna be mutilated, knowing that he's gonna be stripped naked, humiliated, and hung on a cross to die, he still has the self-control and the care for others to take care of them and to set himself 
aside. And it's because, and we're going to see this, it's because Jesus is so secure in the Father's love. And I've said this before and I will continue saying it. My ministry at Door of Hope or wherever I am, if I, if I, if I quit doing this tomorrow and go work as a plumber somewhere, what I want to tell people is that you should and have every reason to be secure in the love of God, come what may. You have every reason to be secure in the love of God. And the reason for Jesus' buoyancy, the reason for his tenacity, the reason for his stick and his poise and his winsome and handsome ways. Handsome? Winsome and handsome? That's not, uh, maybe he was. But his ability to just react, to respond, and to love, and to not consider himself, to not take offense. Peter tells us that when he reviled, he did not revile in return. He was slandered and he did not respond. How does someone have that kind of self-control? He was secure in the Father's love. Chapter one of this book in Mark Jesus is baptized and the skies break open, whatever that means, and the, and the voice of Father God breaks through and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you're here tonight and you're a Christian and you've been born again and washed in the blood of Jesus, it doesn't matter what the devil or what the world throws at you. You are secure in a love that will never fail, never deteriorate, never go away. And you can deal with whatever is unexpectedly coming for you. And we see this in Jesus. He comes from this mountaintop experience into the valley and is confronted with mayhem and reacts in a way that teaches us a great deal. A great deal about him and a great deal about what he's turning us into. So he comes down from the mountain. He comes back, verse 14, back to the disciples. Him, Peter, James, and John come back to the other nine disciples, and they saw a large crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed as they ran up, and they were greeting him, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? There's an argument that's going on here. Verse 14, he sees that there's an argument that's taking place. And this is, this is pretty typical of what we know of the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were Jesus' outspoken enemies. They were always looking for a weak spot. They were always looking to trip Jesus up. They were always looking to catch him in his words. They were always looking to stump him or find some way to discredit him. And now he's away in the mountains and his disciples have come into this situation that they, it's over their head. They can't handle it. And the scribes are finding a way to try to discredit Jesus through his disciples. And we're going to consider that more closely here in just a little bit. They were greatly amazed. They came and they rushed up to him and they ran up to him and were greeting him. And there's some people that I don't, this is one of those points. This is one of those points that, that I, I, I'll bring up often. It's like this doesn't matter to your salvation, but it's in the text so we can talk about it for a minute. But there's no point in getting in an arm wrestling match over it. Some people read this and they go, oh, he must have had some sort of shine left over from the transfiguration. They were amazed when they saw him because there was some sort of glow or there was some sort of essence or something like there was with Moses when he came down from the mountain and literally had to cover his face up. And I, I don't think so because verse 9, Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this. Until I rise from the dead, keep it shut. So I don't think that he was down there showing off what he was telling them to keep quiet. But either way, it's not really the point. What is the point, and I love this, is that he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And no one immediately answers. The people who he asked didn't respond. The, the scribes didn't respond, and the disciples didn't respond. And I'm sure that the disciples were somewhat embarrassed. They got caught. Dad came home and found out that they, they had left their rooms pretty messy. But the scribes didn't say anything, and they always did. And I can't help but wonder if at this point in Jesus's ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had just learned to shut up. Because 
Jesus bested them every single time. And I want to make this a point because I don't know about you, but I am someone who historically and still to this day has a tendency, although it's been abated quite a bit in the last five years, I like to argue with Jesus all the time. I think that I know better. I think that what I feel or what I prefer, what I want is actually the way that things should be. And I have learned the hard way that that is not true. I have learned the hard way what Peter was just told. Quiet, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I have learned to listen to Jesus. And these guys, although they're not listening to Jesus, they know better than to argue with him anymore. There's several examples of this that I want to go through just to really make this point Uh, explicit. In Luke chapter 20, there's a question that's posed, intended to trip Jesus up. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, let's just do a hypothetical real quick. What if a man and woman are married and the man dies? And by our culture, that woman then goes on to the next brother, one of his brothers, and then that brother dies, and she goes on to, she marries the next brother, and that brother dies. And this goes on and occurs seven times in the resurrection whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus says, no. I love that. (laughs) No, you're just all wrong. Your entire question is wrong. No. Uh, He says, they're not going to be married in the kingdom. That time will be passed. And that whole situation ends with these words. And they dared not ask him any more questions. Matthew 22, 46. They dared not ask him any more questions. Matthew 12, 34, they dared not ask him any more questions. Mark chapter 12, should we pay our taxes? Should we do that? I mean, we're Jews, they're Romans, we don't like them. Should we be giving them money? Let me see, let me see one of your coins. Whose inscription? Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, render unto God's what is God's. You guys know the story. And it says that they marveled at what he said. They marveled at his wisdom. My personal favorite, John chapter 7, go take that, that rabble-rousing Jewish carpenter and arrest him. And the authorities go with sword and spirit to arrest Jesus while he's publicly speaking in John 7. They hear what he's saying and they return to their bosses empty-handed, which is a very dangerous thing to do. And upon asking, why did you not bring him with you? Their response was, no man has ever spoken like this man. These guys just know. If you're going to get into an argument, don't do it with Jesus. He's perfect. He's awesome. He's loquacious. He's wise. Shush. Peter, shush. Scribes, shush. Do what Jesus says. So none of them speak up, but one does speak up. One who no doubt Jesus had not been speaking to. He comes out of the crowd and, he's, and he says, Teacher, verse 17, I brought you my son who is possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And this is a lesson to us, friends. Notice that this father, this, this, this distraught, loving father says, I brought to you my son. This guy was aiming to bring his son to Jesus, and Jesus wasn't there, and so the disciples were the best that he could get. And that is a lesson to us. We're going dis- to talk about this again later in the chapter, but this is us, friends. We represent Jesus. We image Jesus. Jesus. We are the living church here in Portland, Oregon in 2022, and if people have any inclination towards Jesus, they're going to be drawn into this building or some other church, and and here we're going to be. And these guys are caught in in a failure. 
And I know that the church has many black eyes, but friends, can we remember when we wake up in the morning, whenever we're com- when we come up against something unexpected, when something, when something flies up in our face and scares us or makes us mad or troubles us, can we remember we're secure in the love of the Father and we are representing the Son? The world around us who doesn't believe in Jesus looks at Christians and what do they see? What do they, what do they think? What's their takeaway when they look at you? What's their takeaway when they look at me? It's a terrifying question. I hate questions like this, but we have to ask ourselves. I came to bring my son to you. He's possessed. The spirit makes him mute, and it seizes him, and it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid, and I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. The disciples at this point had been practicing this. They'd been given authority but they were not able to cast out this demon we're told in mark chapter 6 that jesus gives these boys the ability to be able to do this it says and he summoned the 12 and he began to send them out in pairs and was giving them authority over the unclean spirits these guys have been given authority but here in this moment they apparently don't have any authority and that again is another thing that we're going to consider in just a few more minutes this spirit seizes the boy it throws him on the ground takes control over him. He foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And I have, to, I have to mention this because it's here in the text and there's a lot of critics of the Christian faith that look at something like this. And, and we, we know what this is like. We know the, the battle of mental illness. The, is, it, is, it, is it medical? Is it just mental? Is it, is it spiritual? This boy just sounds like he has leprosy. You're trying to address an actual medical condition with your weird spiritual mumbo-jumbo and you're wasting everybody's time. This This is stupid. Now, I think, to be fair, yes, there are real mental illnesses that have just everything to do with something happening organically in somebody's mind, but don't think for a minute that the devil is not an absolute jerk who won't play on that. And this text makes it very clear. This isn't just epilepsy this boy very well may have had epilepsy and the devil made it worse but it, sa- it says that he, it did, he does, doesn't just fall on the ground and start foaming from the mouth the father says it seizes him and it makes him mute he can't speak the devil takes your weaknesses and he twists it he makes it worse he finds your wound and he pours in lemon juice and he laughs about it the devil hates you and he'll make every weakness that you have worse if he can It seizes him, it slams him on the ground, he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, he becomes rigid. Your disciples could not cast him out. And with this, Jesus, I love this, he cries out and he says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. When you read that at first glance, it sounds like what Jesus is saying is, you know what, guys, I'm gonna count to three and then I'm done. I've about, have about had it. How much longer do I really have to do this? There may be some semblance of frustration there in Jesus. I, I'm not beyond saying that he might actually be a little bit upset, but I think that there's a greater emotion that's happening here. And one of them is this. One of them is that Jesus has been, Jesus came from heaven. Jesus is eternal. Jesus was never created. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. All things were made through him, by him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That means that molecules, 
gravity, evaporation, everything is held together. The baby that's forming in my wife's body right now by some sort of miracle, Jesus is making that happen. He came out of eternity, he stepped into a human body, took on flesh, he gets tired, he gets weak, he gets hungry now. That's new for him, by the way, and he's all alone. If you're here tonight and you feel like no one gets you, if you feel like you don't fit in a lot of the time, maybe, and this is true, maybe like me, people just don't like you. There's Friends, there's so many people who think that it's so stupid that I'm up here preaching. They do not like me. There are, there are people who have either written me letters or looked me in the eye and said, I never want to see you again. And that hurts. That hurts. We're, we're not at home in this world, and neither was Jesus, but so much, so, so much more so for him because he was perfect. I mean, imagine the perfect son of God coming to earth and just, like, people, you're an unbelieving generation. Nobody believes in him. Even the people who know him the best, these 12 guys who have been traveling with him for the last three years, they know him better than anybody, and even them, they're just not quite getting it yet. Jesus is not understood. He is a lone soul. He knows what that feels like. If you're here tonight and you have not fit in before, and that hurts, I know that it does. The God who holds the sun in place can look you in the eye and say, me too. Me too. Nobody understood Jesus. They did not get it. Even his closest people were unbelieving. They did not believe in him. They did not have faith in him. They had some, but they mostly just did not understand him at all. For three years, he did this ministry alone. I wonder what it was like for him as a kid. You know, one day we'll find out. Oh, faithless, unbelieving generation. How long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to put up with you? Not only is this, I believe this, there's this pain, there's this, gosh, I'm here on earth. I'm feeling the weight of ministry. I'm feeling the weight of not being understood. I'm feeling the weight of people not getting it. And I, I know this is the cry of a pastor. This is a very pastoral lament. I, was, I just spent all day yesterday with my friend Paul Anderson, who made this podium, by the way, and he he one time, he's been, he's been doing ministry for almost 40 years, and he shared this one time at a funeral for a kid that we all grew up with here in Southeast Portland, a guy who grew up, we, we skated with him, and of course, just as, as life would have it, he was one of the best, he was one of the most talented, he was sponsored by a professional company, they flew him all over the world to, to skateboard and do demos, and he died of a heroin overdose when he had a two-year-old daughter, and he was like 28, 29. And I remember his funeral, and I remember Paul up there as a pastor lamenting that year after year after year this kid came to skate church he heard the gospel he was in community with christians he would go to bible studies and he just never really cared he never believed it he had people who loved him he had people who would answer the phone he had people who would bail him out of jail he had good christian people around him who were praying for him and preaching to him and he was always hard he was always stiff he never wanted to hear it he never wanted the jesus he wanted to come to skate church and skate the ramps sure that's why they're there but he was hard and i and i remember that paul saying that was the most frustrating thing is that you can't grab somebody by the lapel and make them believe in jesus and Jesus is sitting right here going, you unbelieving generation, oh, I want you to get me, I want you to believe in me, and it's the best possible thing that you could ever do, is to believe in Jesus. This love that Jesus knows he has, that my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus is like, you could have that. Believe, have faith, understand, do you get who I am? My buddy Mike did not. These guys 
don't either, and it breaks Jesus' heart. And I want us to pay attention to that, that Jesus is not this malevolent, vindictive, totalitarian who just tells people what to do because he likes it. He's a God who feels. He feels so greatly that he came here to earth. The immutable God became something he never was before, took on human flesh, and he's here bothered. He's grieved by the unbelief. He's grieved by the lack of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. This is part of his humble work. This is part of his condescension. This is part of his incarnation. How long must I put up with you or tolerate you? And this is not a threat. Jesus is not saying, you've got until I get out of here and then, it's, and then you're cut off. We know this from the rest of the gospels. We know this from the rest of the story. His friends, his disciples were so boneheaded all the way to the end, it gives me so much reassurance that Jesus is so patient with boneheads because I am president of that club. But the Bible tells us that God is patient. 2 Peter 3.9, do not think of God's slowness as you believe in slowness. He's being patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Remember, we covered this over the last couple of weeks at the end of, of John. I mean, the resurrection took place. Jesus died. Everything that he said took place. This, don't tell anybody about the mountain until I raise from the dead, verse 10. They were wondering and arguing with one another what this rising from the dead meant. Well, they found out. Jesus died. He died a real death in history at a real place at a real time, and he actually rose from the dead, and he showed up glorified but still recognizable. Holes in his hands, able to eat fish, but walking through walls. It's weird. It's weird stuff, but he wasn't deluded. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a, a premonition or a ghost. He was not deluded in any way. And then still at the very end, the very last few paragraphs of John's gospel, the guys are standing there in the Sea of Galilee going, I know that's him, but that's got to be him. Oh, that's, that's him. This slow, this slowness, this acclamation to who Jesus is, he knows that. He has grace for that. He has patience for that. Thank God. He's not quick-tempered. He's slow to anger. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus crying over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together like a mother hen gathers her roost. This is a God who loves. This is a God who goes down, who reaches out, and wants to draw you in. Unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? Verse 20, and they brought him the boy, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. It's really, really good news, friends, that God is patient. It's really good news that Jesus is gracious because what this tells me, and this is one of the things that I'm a little bit upset. No one ever told me this when I was growing up. Jesus is terrifying because he is the God of the universe. And here is where there's, there's a line, and I'm gonna step right over it because there are, there are quote-unquote pastors and preachers and teachers of the Bible who will stand up in a pulpit like this and they love the attention, they love the pats on the back, they love it that people ask them to go out and get lunch and breakfast and dinner and they buy them drinks and they want them to, to dedicate their kids, but they will not talk about this because it might cost them congregants. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus is loving, he is kind, he is patient, he came to save sinners that are lost, and he will come back again as a judge. And the demons know it. It's interesting, if you read through the Gospels, 
Everybody was boneheaded except the, de- except the demons. They always knew immediately who he was and they were always scared of him. They were always freaking out. The devil inside of this young boy sees Jesus, knows who he is, and freaks out, throws a fit. We see this all throughout the Gospels. Just earlier, I mean, Mark start, starts off with a bang. Mark chapter one, verse 24, Jesus is teaching and a man with a spirit cried out. And the spirit said, what do, you have, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Nobody was looking at Jesus and saying, ah, the Holy One of God, except John the Baptist. But then he even had his moment of doubt too, right? But this demon knows exactly who Jesus is and says, have you come to destroy us? Yeah, the answer is yes, he has. Luke chapter eight. The man who had a legion of demons inside of him, they see, the demons see Jesus and they say, have you come to destroy us before the time? Matthew 8, verse 29, have you come to torment us before the time? James chapter 2, verse 19, very convicting, very scary verse. What makes you different than the devil? What makes you different than demons? Well, I believe in God. I believe in the triune God. I believe Jesus died and paid for people's sins. James 2, 19 says, good for you. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. That's a terrifying reality and we cannot skip over it. We don't need to be scared of Jesus because he's out to to slit our throats, but we need to be scared of him because he is a perfect and righteous judge who actually put, got his throat cut so that nobody would have to be punished, but hell is still a very real reality. It's a real place. The Bible describes it as the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, and these demons know it. Have you come to destroy us before the time? They know what's gonna happen, and this demon is terrified of Jesus. Jesus is no pushover. This word in in James 2, 19, it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The word tremble in the Greek means to have extreme fear. The demons know enough about God to be afraid of him. And here, we use his name in vain when we stub our toe on something. It's a tragedy, and I'm guilty of it. We're very cavalier with God here, and it's, it's, it's terrifying. Jesus is so good, he's so patient, and he's so kind, and he's also a judge. And friends, I know that it's uncomfortable, and I can always feel the room get into a little bit of a different temperature whenever I preach it, but here it is. He will come back one day as a judge. He will throw Satan into hell. And we're told in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill you and that have nothing that they can do to you. Fear him. This is actually how he says it. He says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who when he has killed you then has authority to cast you into hell. That's who you should fear. But friends, Jesus, look at what Jesus did. Look at what he's in the midst of doing so that that doesn't have to happen to you. Second Peter, he's patient. He's slow. We're like, dude, it's been 2,000 plus years, where are you at, man? He's slow because he's kind. He's slow because he's patient. He's slow because if he had come in 2006, I may not be up here. It took me a long time to confess my sins, to believe in Jesus as God come to earth to seek and to save the lost and to trust him with my everything. I am so thankful that he's slow. I am so thankful that he's taking his time. This demon sees Jesus and he knows exactly who he is and he freaks out. Verse 21, but this is the kindness of Jesus. 
Look at how kind he is. Look at what he's doing here. He did this with Peter at the end of, of John's gospel as well. Verse 21, he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, since childhood. Jesus does not need information. He knows all things about all people. He's not asking the father because the father need, can help Jesus out with what Jesus needs to get done. This is not a mathematical equation. It's not like Jesus is standing with the dad going, okay, how long has this been happening? Six months? We can do something. But a, a year and a half? I don't know, man. That might be outside my pay grade. He's giving the father an opportunity to share. And I think this is something that we need to, as people who represent Jesus, giving people an opportunity to just vent. He's giving this, this father. I mean, imagine this. He's, he comes down from the mountain. He has this epic moment with the father. He's immediately confronted with this chaos. His disciples aren't believing. Jesus has grief in his heart. There's this boy who he loves who's possessed by a devil and has been from childhood, which is a terrifying reality. And he has the sense and he has the, the presence to stop and ask the dad What's going on? And you know that the dad needs to, needs to cry out. He needs to vent. He needs to express his feeling. He gives Jesus way more than Jesus asked for. How long has this been happening? He says, from childhood, verse 22, and it's often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity and help us. Jesus gives this man an opportunity to just express his feelings. And sometimes as a Christian, as a pastor, just giving somebody that right to just cry, to just express why they're upset, how they're upset, the circumstances around that. And you know what, maybe you, maybe you already know. Maybe, you, maybe, you, maybe you're not looking for information. As a pastor, this, this spoke to me loudly. Just let somebody tell you what's going on. Shut up with the advice, shut up with the program and the prescription. There is a time for that. But sometimes the best thing that we can do is to just be quiet and let somebody express what it is that's going on. Somebody that just needs to talk. Someone who needs a shoulder to cry on. This is dad's chance to do that. And we should allow the same. Throws him into the fire. Throws him into the water to try to kill him. Again, this is not just epilepsy. This demon is out for this boy's life. And if you can do anything, verse 22, take pity on us and help us and he's God of the universe. He knows how many hairs are on your head, and he's holding up the entire cosmos, and he looks at this dad, and he says, if? <laughs> if I can? Uh, verse 23, and Jesus said, if you can, uh, all things are possible to him who believes. <clears throat> this verse has been used to distort all sorts of truths that if we just claim it and name it, we can have it. We can, I believe that I'm gonna have that car. I believe that this illness is gonna go away. I believe that this relationship is gonna be uh, brought back into flourishing. I believe that this thing is gonna work out the way that I want it to. I will get that job. I will get that girlfriend. I will get that husband. I will have this many children. If I just believe it and muster up enough faith, it will happen. That sort of stuff, friends, may not be God's will for you. I prayed real hard that my dad wouldn't die. I really didn't want my dad to die. And I had faith. I really believed. I actually do believe that God could have remediated that. He could have taken that cancer in a moment. I really believe that that's true. He didn't. It wasn't in his will. My dad died last August. And you know what? I worship because God knows more than I do. I would have, re I would have written the story differently. My unborn child will never meet my dad. And that bugs me. But I trust God more than it bugs me. So I say, roger that. I trust you, Lord. I see you here, Jesus coming down and doing all of this. 
I see the cross, I see the, I see the prophecies coming to fulfillment even in Jesus' weakest and most, <laughs> most vulnerable moments. He's still fulfilling prophecy, he's still in control. His legs were not broken, he was pierced, fulfilling Psalms 34, fulfilling Zechariah 12. I believe you. So if you take my dad, fine. We don't know circumstantially what is going to occur. We, it may be God's will that that cancer goes away. It may be God's will that you get that husband, that wife, that situation. It may be God's will that the thing that you want works out the way that you want it to. It very well may be, and I hope that it is. I really hope that it is. What I see here, all things are possible. All things are possible. The cancer amelioration, that might, that's possible. Absolutely, it's possible. But what's, what's guaranteed, where we are supposed to work, and it's no less, I would argue, it's no less a miracle if you believe, is that you become the kind of people who can endure and remain faithful to Jesus no matter what comes your way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go ahead, turn up the flames seven times hotter than they already are. We ain't bowing to your God. Lowercase g. My prayer and my hope as a pastor, what I, want, what I believe is absolutely possible is that your inner person, despite your circumstance, your inner person, because you believe in Jesus Christ, because you believe this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You believe that about you. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved Liz. This is my beloved Angela, my beloved Jimmy, my beloved Marilyn. You are my beloved child. I'm well pleased with you. And that it builds up in us over the course of time this kind of miracle. I'm gonna read this. You don't have to turn there. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse 16. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him so that you, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. Do you know that hope? Do you marinate on that hope? Or do you renew your mind daily on that hope? Read your Bibles every day. It's a good place to start. That you will know the hope of his calling and the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards you who believe according to the working of his might, of his strength, which he worked in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. Do you believe? When Jesus cried out, oh, unbelieving generation, part of his lament there was that they were missing out on this because the, to, to the only way to get out of this planet alive is Jesus Christ and what he's done. Come what may, circumstantially. One more, Ephesians chapter three. This can happen. This is who you can become. This is available to you if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you are born again. Maybe the cancer doesn't go away. Maybe you're single until the day that you pass away. I hope not, but if that is the case, you can still have this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, listen to this, friends, go home and read this, Ephesians three sixteen. that he would give you According to his riches, the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner person so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love, firmly rooted and grounded in love, not anxiety, not fear, not disappointment, grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ 
which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You do that, next time you stub your toe on something, whoo, thank you, Lord, that you're testing me. Someone slights you, someone breaks up with you, someone dies. I hate to be cavalier, I hate to say it, but friends, I've been there. I'm not talking from a place of ignorance. My dad died in my arms, and I'm telling you what, not because I'm a stoic, not because I'm a sociopath, but because I believe this. I believe Jesus. I believe in his cross. I believe in heaven. My dad is dancing right now. Get him out of here. Let him go. He was in so much pain before he died. <laughs> One of his best friends said to me the other day, well, this was a couple months ago. We were talking about my dad and my friend Larry, 75 years old, goes, you know, I was, you know, your dad, I miss him, but I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Me too, bruh. That's not, and the devil will try to tell you that you're a sociopath, that you're an absolute emotionally vacant loser for feeling that way. It's not true. It is the peace that surpasses understanding that is available to you. The world cannot destroy you. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just absolutely crazy? They looked at the fire and they just didn't get it? No, they just believed in God that much more. And that is available. And that is, that is my prayer. All things are possible for them who believe. You believe this, you can do anything even if your circumstances aren't what you want them to be. This sermon's gonna go long. I just looked at my clock and I'm already over time, so that's all right. There's no kids downstairs waiting to be released. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and was saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> Has there been anything more honest that's ever come out of the mouth of a human being? He knows that his belief is weak, but it's genuine. He believes enough to believe that Jesus can help his unbelief. That's pretty, that's pretty wild. And we see this again all over, the, all over the Testaments. We see it in all over the Gospel of John. Peter denied Jesus even after vociferously saying that he would not do that. Mary was convinced that Jesus was still dead when she came to the tomb. Thomas doubted. The seven guys at the end of the book went fishing because they thought, well, never mind that whole fishers of men thing. They saw Jesus on the shore and they still were like, but is it him? I believe, help my own belief. Um, weak faith is still faith. Praise God. Praise God. There's not, there's not a balance here. Faith like a mustard seed. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And praise God that Jesus is indestructible and he is overqualified for death. And with all of this, with all of this sureness with all of this power with all of this omnipotence with all of this if all of this peace and solidarity that he has in the father's love jesus saw verse 25 that a crowd was rapidly gathering and he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it you mute and deaf spirit i command you come out of him and do not enter him again and after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead but Jesus took him by the hand and he raised him up and the boy stood. Verse 28. Which, by the way, you know what that is? <laughs> That's a little picture of heaven. That's a little bit of Jesus coming into this fallen world with death and decay and sin and malevolence and cynicism and hatred and depression and all of the rest. And it's him bending things back to the way that they are. We think of natural, uh, we think of miracles as supernatural, and it's not. It's supernatural to us in this dimension. 
but Jesus is bending things back into what naturally was the, the earth that he created, the reality that he actually spoke into existence. Jesus is bending it back into that reality. He's fixing things. He's casting out evil. He's saving lives. Jesus is always in the business of making things better for people. Verse 28, and so when he had come into the house, his disciples began asking him privately, why could we not cast out this demon? Because once upon a time they could. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20, Jesus sends out the 72, gives them, a, gives them authority over spirits. They cast out devils, and they come back rejoicing that they're able to do so. They come to Jesus, and they say, even the spirits are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, do not rejoice in this. Rejoice in the reality that your names are wor- written in the book of heaven. Uh, so they could. They had success casting out demons. Well, what happened? They got cocky. We get cocky. We have a gift, we have a calling, we have a job, we have a role, we have a pulpit, we, and we get cocky. I don't need, okay, I got it. You gave me the, you gave me the calling, you gave me the power, you gave me the gift. Uh, there's authority, I have authority over the demons, so I'm good, I'm gonna get busy. Talk later, Jesus, and we neglect prayer, we neglect fasting, we neglect spending time with Jesus. We stop going to the mountain. I love, I love that Peter's like, oh, cool, Moses and Elijah, tell you what, let's build some huts and stay a while. Uh, I would love that. I would love, like the end of John, the seven disciples and Jesus sitting at the shoreline eating fish. I wish that the story stopped there. You know, it was just like, and happily ever after, but breakfast was finished and Jesus said, you gotta go to work. And Peter, by the way, this work, it's gonna kill you. That's where we are, friends. We're in the midst of that, and we need to daily remember who is our king and daily remember that without his constant intervention, your lungs stop working, your heart stops beating, your brain stops working. Everything that's happening right now is because the Lord is allowing it. And if you have the gift of singing, if you're a preacher, if you have any sort of ministry at all and you start to forget about Jesus, you don't spend time in prayer, you don't spend time with him. You don't commune with the Lord. You're not in the scriptures remembering that you are so dependent on him literally for every breath you take in, then you'll start to go sideways. I'll, I'll start to go, you know what? I, I do like the attention. I do like people asking me out for dinner. And so maybe I'm gonna like not talk about all the stuff that people don't wanna talk about. God's a judge. There is a hell. There is a reality of, of death. And there, the time is that once you, the, the Bible says that Hebrews 9, it's appointed for someone to die once and then comes judgment. I'm just gonna forget about all that stuff. Maybe I'll just not be a preacher anymore. Maybe I'll start taking a big paycheck and doing events for Nike. Before I was a preacher, I did storytelling around Portland. I could just go back to doing that. It's more fun and people aren't asking me what I'm looking at on the internet. That's pretty cool. Thank you, by the way, those of you who keep me accountable for all sorts of reasons because I need to be held accountable. But it'd be a lot easier to get out of here It'd be a lot easier to take my mouth and go do something else. I could, go, I could go talk for any sort of corporation. I could go get a job giving speeches, no sweat, no heart, no prayer. I don't care. I could just go do this. It would be easier. Friends, that is what Jesus is saying here. You neglect prayer. You neglect fasting. You neglect the fact that you need to stay tethered to Jesus every waking moment of your entire life. Your ministry will either go completely sideways or it might just be taken away altogether. And we've seen pastors who forgot about this 
and they get caught up in affairs. They get caught up in online relationships. They get caught up in drugs and in some sort of abuse because we, f- we forget this. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or not. If you're a Christian, this is real for you. And maybe, and I'll make this last technical note and then we can close out and go get some dinner. Not all of the translations that you may have will say prayer and fasting. Verse 29, the oldest manuscripts don't have uh, fasting. So I have the Legacy Standard Bible. It says this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Your translation might say prayer and fasting. And so just, just a note on fasting, the reason why that's included, and I think something that we can take away from that, fasting is uh, it's prescribed, it is, it, is, it is given as a command in the Bible, it's something to practice. And what fasting is, and I, and I love this, what fasting is, is it's, it's like baptism. It's an outside practice, it's an outside manifestation physically of an inward devotion. This, I, every breath, the blood running through my veins, my baby being put together in my wife's, I mean, incredible stuff. Jesus is in control of all of it. And if he says no or if he says stop, it stops. The same is true for you. More than you need food, more than you need hydration, more than you need nutrition, more than you need anything, you need the Lord. More than anything, you need the Lord. And fasting is practicing that. I'm going to abstain from something that I actually do need as a practice, acknowledging that I am aware proving that I am aware and taking into consideration the reality that maybe I go without food, I still have the Lord for a time. It's manifesting that reality in the physical world. I am dependent upon you, Jesus. I know it. I'm actually going to practice it. I'm not going to eat for 24 hours, 48 hours. Some people fast technology. Some people fast alcohol, which is a good way of finding out, does something have a grip on you more than it should? Do you spend too much time surfing the web? Do you spend too much time at the bar shumming it up three, four, five, six beers later? You, that's become a habit and then you fast it for 48 hours and you realize, oh man, you know what? I like drinking too much. I, I smoke too much. Friends, this is a good way. This is the way. This is Jesus' prescribed way of just testing you. Like, where are you at? Where are you at? And no matter what it is, you need Jesus more. Your ministry needs some more. If you're a Bible study leader, if you're a community group leader, if you're a preacher, if you're a worship leader, whatever you are, if you're a mother who's raising your children to love the Lord, if you're a father, if you're a sibling of somebody who is your, your whatever it is, fill in your situation, you need Jesus. And without dependence upon him, it could fail. It will fail eventually. Do you remember daily that this is your king? And so, and so at a, the drop of a hat, when something comes up, how do you respond? With anger or with fear? I'll close out with this, and then I'm, I'm really done. I'm really done. There's a story that, that pictures this. I just read this this morning. I'm going through the Old Testament just on my own personal time, and I read this this morning, and I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. This is perfect. What do you say? What do you think? What do you feel? What do you do when someone comes up and is just like, shut up, man. Like, I mean, Pip. So this actually happened. Pip just got randomly punched in the chest by a guy on the bridge. This was like three or four months back. He was walking over the Tilikum Bridge and there was this guy who was running and just like punched Pip in the chest and kept going. What do you do when that happens? Do you chase the guy down? You pull out his fingernails? You punch him in the Like, what do you do? Do you, just, do, you, do you go in like, oh man, everybody, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. Like, what, what do you do? How do you respond? Violence? 
Do you, go, do you turn in on yourself? Why, God, would you let that happen? I already don't feel good about myself. And then there's some guy's gonna punch me in the chest. Check this out. This is King David. Look at how he responds. King David is on the run from his own son, Absalom, which, I mean, talk about a bummer of a situation. He's fleeing from his son. He comes into this land, and there is this guy who knows who David is. His name is Shimei. And Shimei doesn't like David. Shimei's mad at David. And so Shimei cursed when he saw David. He said, get out, you man of blood. Get out, you vile fellow. Yahweh has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given you a kingdom into the house, has given the kingdom of your house into the hands of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. And one of the servants said to David, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me pass over there now and remove his head. <coughs> the king, legit, you know I need friends like that. But King David said this, listen to this, this is what King David said. This guy's cussing at David, he's throwing stones at David, he's throwing dust at David. And David says this, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if Yahweh has told him to do so, to curse David, then who shall say to him, why have you done this? And then David said to his servants, behold, my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite, this man who curses me, let him alone and leave him and let him curse for Yahweh has instructed him to do so. Perhaps Yahweh will look on my affliction and return to me good for this cursing. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Genesis 50 verse 20. David sees this happening. He's got this very common everyday chaos. He's got something, he's got somebody literally throwing rocks at him and David's like, you know what? The Lord could turn this around for good. Don't stop him from doing this. I love it. First Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Take that home, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. Take that home. Because we read stuff like that and then we just keep going. But did you hear that? For a little while you will suffer in the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You are called to eternal glory. Your suffering is that long and eternity is... That picture we looked at last week from 4.6 billion miles away in outer space, his love is bigger than that. His eternity is bigger than that. He has called you to eternal glory in Christ and he will set, and he himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Let this guy throw stones. Let this person cuss at you. Let, let this, 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 whatever this is that's coming at you, don't respond with anger. Don't respond with hatred. They may mean it for evil, but God means it for good. The little things and the big. Are you secure in God's love? Do you know that he's paying attention to you? Do you know that he's not sitting back indifferent, cold, callous, not paying attention? He sees you. He loves you. He sent his son to, in the midst of your trouble, be present so that Jesus could say, tell me about what's going on. How long has this been happening? Do you believe that? Everything he has to say to us is right here. Go home and read your Bibles, friends. Jesus is good. Amen?